We're beginning just a brief little series. Um, uh, at the beginning of September, we're going to start a series called Arguing with Jesus. And uh, I like the idea of sort of that, that sort of concept of arguing with Jesus about, all right, am I going to submit to you or am I not going to submit to you? And, uh, but before we start that series in September, we've got this little series that we're going to do in August. And originally, it was going to be on the, the, what's called the threefold office of Christ. And so there was a church historian named Eusebius uh, back in the fourth century who first sort of used this terminology about Jesus as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And then Calvin really unpacked that a bit later. And uh, I was going to do one Sunday on Christ as a prophet, one Sunday as Christ as a priest, one Sunday as Christ as a king. And I decided instead just to focus on Christ as a prophet. And, uh, and so we're going to delve into uh, what that means that he is our prophet. And so um, let me read in order to give you some context about this discussion. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 43. And this is how it answers the question about how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet. It says this, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. I'm assuming that was pretty clear for all of you, right? Focus on the two words. Basically what this means is that Jesus is our primary teacher in regards to that which edifies us or helps us live life, builds us up, and also saves us, all right? So that's that. There's a man named Joel Beek who's the president of the Puritan Theological Seminary. Here's what he has to say about Jesus as a prophet. Christ is the prophet whom we need to instruct us in the things of God so as to heal our blindness and ignorance. The Heidelberg Catechism, so that other catechism I read is the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is the Heidelberg Catechism, calls Jesus our chief prophet and teacher. So it really kind of aligns those two terms who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. The Lord thy God, Moses declared in Deuteronomy 8.15, will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And what we're told in Matthew is that this is God's son and God demands that we listen to his son. And so those are some of the theological ways in which we think about Jesus as a prophet. But what we see in scripture and in these quotes is that Jesus as a prophet is really a lot like a great teacher. And so think for a moment about some great teachers you may have had in junior high and high school, maybe in college. Now, in a moment, we're going to be uh, going into uh, a clip from a movie which highlights a great teacher who inspires otherwise apathetic students. Now, obviously, I could have used some of the great movies like Mr. Holland's Opus, if you guys remember that, maybe from the 80s or 90s, or I could have used the Dead Poet Society. Some of you guys are familiar with that movie with Robin Williams, or the Freedom Riders, which came out in 2007. But instead, I've chosen something with a little more gravitas, a little more weight, uh, and I've decided to use a clip from The School of Rock, which includes Jack Black. Now, in this clip, Uh, You'll be seeing in just a moment, Jack Black plays a struggling rock guitarist, Dewey Finn, who's just been kicked out of his band. And he's about ready to be kicked out of his apartment because he can't pay the rent. And so he decides to impersonate a substitute teacher at a very, very prestigious prep school in order to try to pay his share of the rent. And what ends up happening, and you're going to see this in this clip, is that he actually turns out to be a pretty great teacher as long as he's teaching these kids about rock and roll. Let me take a moment, let's pray, 
and then we'll jump into this. And let me tell you, I typically tell people, like, don't ever use a clip that's longer than two minutes. That's sort of my industry standard. But today's clip is going to be four minutes and 17 seconds. And the reason it's four minutes and 17 seconds is because it's totally worth it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, we would watch this little clip today and, and that ultimately what we would be reminded of as we see this clip is that your son Jesus came to teach us as the Westminster Confession and the Heidelberg Confession told us, to teach us about how it is that we're to live life, how it is that we're supposed to grow and thrive and flourish, and even how it is that we come into a relationship with you that we might be saved. So Father, I pray that we would enjoy this clip. I pray that we would, um, more importantly, however, be touched at the deepest levels of our heart so that we look at Jesus and we trust him as our great prophet, our great teacher. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I could have gone longer. We just, that was maybe enough. But part of the reason, uh, again, I could have used all these really somber and sort of inspiring clips, but the truth is that what great teachers do is they awaken and then they inspire their students. We got a lot of teachers in here. Um, Catherine Nobles, I don't know if you've seen that, but you should check it out, obviously. Anyway, but again, great teachers awaken and they inspire their students. Um, they challenge them to see something from a new perspective, and then they inspire them to act upon that new vision. Now, Jesus was arguably, or maybe not arguably, the most compelling teacher ever. I mean, he changed the world, honestly. And throughout his ministry, he was constantly challenging people, and he was enabling to see the world in new ways, or maybe a better way of saying it is he, was, he enabled them to see the world as it really was. That's exactly what Jesus did in Luke chapter 15, which is what we're going to be looking at today. And now, the religious elite, the Pharisees, they're mad at Jesus because he's welcoming sinners, and he's inviting them into a relationship with God, which is a position in their minds that should only be reserved for good people, for righteous people, for the religious people. In the following story, this is the story called The Prodigal Son, Jesus, however, challenges the Pharisees' view of sin, of sinners, and of God himself. Let's jump into Luke chapter 15. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm gonna read sections, and then we're gonna unpack bits and pieces of it. Luke chapter 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, Jesus goes on to tell over the next few verses about what his life began to look like as sin wreaked havoc and chaos upon his life. Eventually, he decided to return home. Verse 20, and he, that is this younger brother, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, not allowing the son to finish his speech, said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The young son was restored to his uh, former position in the home. Verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, begged him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. Actually, the word there is slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's probably one of Jesus' most well known stories that he uses to teach the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the disciples something about sin, something about sinners, and something about God. But before we jump into those three things, let me just point out that what Jesus is doing here is he's using a story to sneak past the intellectual defenses of these Pharisees. And so Jesus is constantly using stories. We did a series not long ago about the stories of Jesus in order to teach his listeners. And research interestingly shows that stories are one of, if not the most effective ways, one of the most effective ways to get people to change or to engage in new thinking or in new behaviors while simply sort of conveying information is actually one of the least effective ways to get people to change. It helps a lot if it's in story form. Here's from a book called Influencers, what they have to say about getting people to change. Every time you try to convince others through verbal persuasion, you suffer from your inability to select and share language in a way that reproduces in the mind of the listener exactly the same thoughts that you're having. You say your words, but others hear their words, which in turn stimulate their images, their past histories, and their overall meaning, all of which may be very different from what you intended. Influencers, that is this sort of rare group of people, these great teachers who actually get people to change the way they think or change the way they behave, use four tactics to help people love what they hate. They allow for choice, number one. Number two, they create direct experiences. What they find is that if we can get people to do things, they oftentimes realize that they actually enjoy whatever those things are. Number three, and this is the part about stories, they tell meaningful stories, right? And then number four, they oftentimes make it a game. Now, great teachers use stories because they actually sneak past our defenses. And stories allow a teacher to engage someone's heart by the way or by way of their imagination. The Pharisees in this story, uh, ultimately, they're the ones that sort of are represented by this character, the older brother. They get totally and completely sucked into this story being told by Jesus before they finally realize that it's actually mostly about them. But what is it that Jesus is trying to get these Pharisees to see, to experience? Well, again, three things. He's trying to get to address their wrong thinking about sin, about sinners, and about God. So he's trying to address their wrong thinking about sin. Let's jump in very quickly to verses 11 and 12. They say this, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. 
And he, that is the father, divided his property, although you can see there that the Greek word is actually bios, divided his life between them, right? There's something there. There's something meaningful that Jesus intends there. The cost of sin is greater than we might realize. The Pharisees were wrong about their view of sin. And frankly, most of us in this room, we're wrong about our view of sin. The Pharisees thought that sin was breaking the rules, but it was actually about breaking relationships. It's one of the main things Jesus wants to convey here. That's why in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, when Jesus is asked by a lawyer to sum up the 10 commandments, he answers in relational terms. Listen to verses 36 through 40. He doesn't answer in terms of breaking the rules. He answers in terms of relationships. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, the lawyer asks. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So he sums up, Jesus sums up the first five commandments as loving God. Then he says, verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son is saying that sin isn't just breaking the rules. It's much more like a son going to his father and saying, I don't really wanna have a relationship with you, but I do want your stuff, right? That would be incredibly painful for any of us to experience a mother and a father to realize my child actually doesn't want a relationship with me. They just want what I can give them. That would hurt anyone. Sin at its core is relational, right? It's part of the reason that God has anger about sin is because it's ultimately about harming people. It either wounds God, right? That's what we see as his bios. His life is divided between his boys or it wounds someone that we love or wounds someone created in God's image or it wounds us. Uh, Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov has this to say about how sin wounds us. I've got a quote up up on the screen. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks to bestiality and his vices all from continual lying to other men And to himself, what Dostoevsky, who is brilliant, recognizes is that the real weight and gravity of sin is it's not at all about breaking the rules. It's about harming the very people that we love. It's about harming ourselves. It's about harming God. It's about hurting relationships. So ultimately, what Jesus does here is he begins to or tries to correct their wrong perspective of sin that ultimately Sin is relational, and it breeds isolation relationally, or it breeds relational chaos. It hurts God, it hurts us, it hurts those that we love. And some of you this morning need to take a moment and to think about how your sin may be costing you, how it may be costing God, and how it may be costing those you love, right? Because some of you think, ah, my sin is secret, It's hidden away. It really is just about me. But part of what you need to understand is that God is passionately committed to removing 
that sin out of your life and out of this world because ultimately that sin harms you. It harms him, but it hurts uh, those other people that we love as well. Sin is relational. The second thing we see Jesus doing in this story is that he corrects not only their wrong thinking about sin, but he corrects their wrong thinking about sinners. So let's look at verses 28 through 30. But he was angry and refused to go in. That is this older brother. When he hears that his brother, younger brother has come home, his dad tells him to come in and he doesn't do it. He says this, his father came out and entreated him or begged him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you again, slaved, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In other words, rather than being happy that his younger brother is home and safe and sound, this older brother is angry that the father has shown mercy and grace to this younger brother. So the idea of sin as hurting relationships, that would have been a paradigm shift for the Pharisees for sure. It's not how they thought about it. But it wouldn't have been nearly as offensive and shocking as what Jesus did next because Jesus shows clearly that the older brother in this story is just as guilty of sin as the older brother, as the younger brother is. As Jesus told the story, the Pharisees would have been shaking their heads in disapproval at the behavior of the younger son. Like you can just imagine them looking at one another and shaking their heads and thinking like, how could he do that? They would have been indignant when he went to the father and asked for his inheritance, right? They would have been rightfully in some respects indignant. In a shame and honor culture like the ancient Near East, treating your father this way would have been deeply dishonoring and deeply shameful. And so when the story follows the younger brother and finds him starving and eating pig slop, the Pharisees would have nodded their heads in approval at the outcome of his rash and overt sinfulness. In other words, they would have been saying, good, he got what he deserved. But when Jesus began telling the story about the older brother, the faithful one, the good one, they would have been shocked. When the father comes out and implores the older brother, the older son to come in, he clearly, that is the older brother, clearly and publicly treats his father with disrespect and with contempt which is a sin, the commentators tell us, that would have been punishable by a beating or by disowning him in that culture. In other words, what the older brother did was just as bad because it publicly, publicly shamed the father. Jesus was making a point about sin. Both the young brother and the old brother, the bad kid and the good kid, they're actually equally sinful, They're just as bad as one another. They are each, in the words of Brennan Manning, trying to attain the blessings of God without attaining the God of the blessings. In other words, they don't want a relationship with their father. They just want his stuff. Now, this room today is filled with two kinds of people, older and younger brothers, and each is equally sinful, The younger brothers take what they want from life and they openly disregard and reject God. The older brothers go about it just a little differently. They try to bribe God into giving them his wealth, his blessings by doing and being who they think he actually wants them to be. And at the end of the day, neither the older brother or the younger brother, apart from a God-given new heart, actually desire to have a relationship with God. 
part of what Jesus is doing is he's helping them to, uh, to see their wrong thinking about sin and their wrong thinking about sinners, right? He's recategorizing both of these things for the Sadducees, for the Pharisees, and even the disciples. We need to hear this as well, right? Probably most of us in this room would be older brothers. Part of what we need to repent of is not just our open and overt sins, but we need to repent of the inappropriate and wrongful desires that are underneath even our right actions. Tim Keller basically says, we not only need to repent of our sin, but we need to repent of our righteousness. So sin, sinners, Jesus also goes about addressing their wrong thinking about his father. Look at verses 20 through 24. But while he was still a long way off, that is this younger brother, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And so perhaps more than anything in this parable, what Jesus is actually doing is he's teaching the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and even his own disciples about God. Sin is relational, check. Uh, Sinners are both overtly righteous and covertly manipulative, the older and younger brothers, check. But Jesus ultimately here is telling a story about who God is and how he responds to us and to our sin. And if you look, what you see is Jesus is saying, look, you have these different conceptions of God. Some of you think of him as this you know, old sort of Norse god sitting on a throne with long white hair and a long beard and a hammer waiting to crush you, right? But instead, what I'm telling you is that God is actually much more like a father who when his children wander away, he's walking, pacing back and forth on the front steps of his tent in this case, looking off into the distance, waiting for us to return to him, desiring, longing for us to return to him. And when we do take those steps towards him, he runs to meet us and he offers us forgiveness and he offers us restoration. And for those of us who are much more like the older brother who are simply in this process of trying to earn his favor and by his affirmation, Part of what we see is that this father also comes out to us and begs us to enter in to a relationship with him that's not based upon our effort, but rather is based upon the mercy and the grace of this good, good father who longs to have a relationship with both of his children. Now, as you look around the room today, you see these tables with bread and wine. That's on my right, your left. On the other side of the room over here, we have bread and grape juice, but what these tables and these elements of bread and wine represent is they represent a family table of sorts, right? And so this family table is symbolized by this bread and wine. And basically what God is saying, Jesus is saying through this meal, this Passover meal that's become the Lord's Supper, Jesus is saying, if you trust in me as your savior, and if you trust in God as this good father, then you're welcome to come to this family meal because it's all that's required 
to sit down at this table and to drink this bread and to drink this wine is trusting in me, God's only son, right? It's always by grace. It's always by mercy. We never earn it, right? We never gain God's favor because of what we do or even by what we don't do, but rather we gain God's favor simply by trusting in his son, Jesus, as our savior. And then God invites us to this table to take and eat. I'm gonna ask that you take a moment and you think about your sin. You think about yourself as a sinner. And then I want you to take a moment, I want you to think about who God actually is, who Jesus reveals him to be through this story. And then if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, I want you to realize that what is offered to you is the same that is offered to this younger brother and this older brother, which is forgiveness and restoration, past, present, and future. I'm gonna read the words of institution, then I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna ask that you come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be a prophet, um, that he might declare to us what is true, what is true about who you are as our father, what is true about Jesus as our savior, and Father, what's true about us, that we're sinners, um, that whether we look good on the outside or we look bad on the outside, that our hearts are actually the same. That, uh, that at our core, apart from your work in our hearts, we don't trust you. And so we go about this world trying to manipulate or simply steal what it is that we desire apart from you. And so, Father, I pray that this morning we would confess our sin, confess that we are sinners and that we would trust in you as our Savior and your Son, Jesus, as our loving and good, caring Father. Uh, it is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.